I invite you to turn in your copy of the Word to the book of Nehemiah. I'll give you a moment to turn. And if you do not have a copy of the Scriptures, you can find a Bible in the pew in front of you, or you can simply give attention to the hearing of the Word. That's something to be thankful for right there, by the way. Through most of church history, the average Christian simply didn't have a written copy of the Scriptures. So how did they learn the Scriptures? They went to church and they heard them read, and it was very common in the past that there would be long reading portions in the service and then also throughout the week, that people would come and they'd hear somebody read for 30 minutes or an hour, and that's just the reading portion of the Old Testament, and they do it for the New, and so people learned the Bible. I've sometimes wondered to what extent the average Christian's knowledge of the Bible is actually perhaps higher if you're in a congregation that did that, because all of us struggle to remember and to set aside time to read. Now, Nehemiah chapter 12, our focus will be from verses 27 to verse 43, but I'd like to give something of a setting to this. Not everyone is as familiar with the book of Nehemiah. Basically, you have the people of God being exiled from the land that God had given to them and covenanted to them. And they are exiled because of breaking the covenant. They go to Babylon, and they are there for 70 years. And after 70 years, just as God had promised, they are given permission to return. However, not all of them do, just a remnant does. The great majority of Jews who were scattered to the winds chose to stay where they're at for a lot of different reasons. But a group of several thousands comes down back to Jerusalem with the intention of restoring the temple and honoring God and fulfilling what they had been called to do in the world, which was to be a light to the nations, and also to rebuild the broader city of Jerusalem. So they go down, and Nehemiah is the de facto civil leader going with them. And when he arrives down at the city, one of the very first things he does is survey the walls. And this makes sense. He wants to establish a secure perimeter before he goes building the temple and everything involved in that. And they were living in a hostile environment. The people who had kind of come into the land during those 70 years when most of the Jews were gone, understandably, did not want to have now the Jews returning into this place. And there is threatening, and there is political subterfuge, and there's a man named Sanballat who's constantly trying to make sure that the plans to rebuild the city and the wall fail. And so Nehemiah goes so far as to instruct the people after organizing them into work parties to rebuild the different sections of the wall, different families taking ownership, providing for that. He instructs the workers, while you labor, labor with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. That's the environment that they are laboring in to rebuild the wall. Now you can imagine that in a world before artillery and before air power, your wall was your sense of practical security. It was the difference between being swept away by invaders or being able to hold out for a long time. Israel will later hold out against the might of Rome, against Titus, for months because of the walls that they have. You have the famous city of Constantinople, which for a thousand years was protected by its immense walls. And so one of the most traumatic moments in Jewish history would have been those moments when a breach was opened in the walls. And now there's danger and the enemy may rush in. Conversely, one of the most relieving, one of the most 
joyful moments in their history would be those moments when the last gap in the wall is filled. And that's what they are celebrating on the day that we encounter in this passage after spending months and months working on these walls, all the people organized and dedicated to it, they finally are celebrating that the wall is complete, the gates are constructed, the towers are built, things are in a sufficient order that they can turn their attention to the temple and to building up the glory of God and celebrating his presence with them. So that's the circumstance that we come to here, and we look at specifically how do they celebrate on that day. Beginning at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophilites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people in the gates at the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Galali, Maai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maaseiah, Miniamen, Micaiah, Elianoi, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his special blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you asking both for the appetite to receive your word and for the gift of understanding. Lift us up and fill us with gratitude this day through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Your spirit is alive and works in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I would suppose that this is one of the less familiar of the stories of the Old Testament, and even of the story of Nehemiah. The focus tends to be on the building of the wall, and many sermons are written and given on that subject, and its parallels to you know, fortifying the kingdom with courage and faith. This story is often forgotten, and I would submit to you that in order to profit spiritually from it, we need to do two things. First, we need to form an accurate picture of the procession on that day. Because perhaps there is imagery there or even symbols there that will be significant for us. And then after we have a good picture of this procession, we need to ask what the point is. Are there any parallels? Are there any lessons that we can draw from this, even on this Thanksgiving Day, but then also broadly in how we express our thankfulness to the Lord? So in the very first place, let's take a few minutes here and build out and really try to imagine the pageantry of what was going on that day with the people of God. First place we find in the text that Nehemiah gathers both the civil and the religious leaders to the western section of the wall. You have to picture the wall goes around the whole city and off in the west, here these officials gather and Nehemiah leads them to the top of the wall. This is not like your garden wall. It's not one brick wide. This would have been anywhere from large enough to drive one or two SUVs across the top. It is a big wall, and the leaders go up top. And then Nehemiah divides them into two groups. You see verse 31. I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Each of these groups is basically balanced. If you look at verses 31 through 42, you'll see each has a prominent layperson to lead the procession. You have Hoshiah on one side and then Nehemiah on the other. Each group has half of the lay leaders. So not the religious leaders, but the civil leaders are setting a pattern of thankfulness to God. Half of the lay leaders of Judah. And then each group has a musical director to help lead the singing. Zechariah on one side, Jezriah on the other. Then we find seven priests with trumpets, eight priests with other musical instruments, the instruments of David, it simply says. We can imagine there are cymbals, there are zithers, lyres. So this is a big musical procession, and anywhere from estimates range, it depends how you interpret great choir, and the minimum number of people to be heard above the sound of the instruments, but 25 to 100 people in each wing of this great set of choirs. Now, what is their job? They are atop the wall, and their job is to encircle the city. They start in the west. One group, led by Hoshia, is going to go to the south. Nehemiah is going to lead to the north. And they are going to go around the city. And the whole time as they go, they are celebrating with thankful songs. These are huge choirs singing out and leading a procession that all the city can see atop the wall until they ultimately converge. The two, you know, one's going clockwise, the other's going counterclockwise. They converge on the eastern side, and then they come down basically in the temple courtyard area, and they process to where the temple shall be. And then the real celebration begins. So it's a phenomenal, it's a picturesque way of bringing together and gathering the whole city for worship on that day. That's the basic imagery of what we have here. We can imagine that perhaps they were singing Psalm 48, 
or Psalm 147, which are both songs of thanks. We sang Psalm 48 last week. There's the imagery. It's not terribly complex, but it's very beautiful. The question is, what is the point? Why is this recorded for us, and what does the Lord desire us to take from it? And I would set before you perhaps four different lessons or parallels that we find here. The first is that the Lord desires his people to publicly acknowledge the fact that it is he who establishes our security. They don't simply gather to celebrate that a man like Nehemiah with such force of personality has brought about the rebuilding of the wall. These are songs to the Lord. They are acknowledging that he has worked providentially for the degree of security that they have there, and it's not enough to do so privately in your heart. It is appropriate for God who has worked openly that we would come openly together and that we would celebrate. Now you think about what the Lord did for them in terms of their civil security. That wall was a major step in providing for them the kind of defense that they would need to go about their business without looking over their shoulder at all times. The very fact that a city had a wall meant that typically, unless an enemy was profoundly strong and well-prepared, they simply didn't even bother with that city. And so from that point forward, they knew we, we can rest now. We can get about the work that we've been called to in other areas of life. Do we not have at least as much reason to give thanks to the Lord this morning, publicly even, for the degree of security that we have enjoyed by God's providential hand in this land? Not everywhere in the world on this day has what we are enjoying. And we have it not simply because, oh, well, we happen to live in a place with more resources than other places, or we have better politicians, or we have a bigger army. The Lord could dash any of those things in a moment. If we celebrate and have these good things, we have it because God in his providential purpose has decreed the boundaries of nations and the blessings of cities. And it's appropriate not only that the church leaders should do this, but even as our president once did, Abraham Lincoln, that we should acknowledge from a civil position as well, there is a God. And man, and particularly our politicians, cannot claim for themselves the blessings of this life. God uses means. And we owe a debt of gratitude to those who have served and through whom we have these things. But the Lord is worthy of public acknowledgement. So what you do this day pleases him. All throughout this country, there are Christians gathered to acknowledge publicly in different ways the goodness of the Lord. But it's not just our temporal security. Far more the church celebrates this day the wall that God has raised up around his people in the form of everlasting salvation. Christians live in places that are war-torn and dangerous, whether that be particular cities or regions, whether that be entire countries. There are Christians in Ukraine and Russia. There are Christians in Gaza and Israel. And this day, they may not celebrate, as we do, the same degree of temporal security. And yet, they have, if they are in Jesus Christ, something even more worthy of celebration than the person who is situated in the most peaceful part of Switzerland right now if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. God has raised up, without our having to do anything in it, a wall that is invincible. And that wall is comprised of these various stones or structures, if you will. When you think about, first, his calling from eternity, that he elected a people chosen purely according to grace, 
And if you believe in Christ, you have no reason to doubt you are among that group. The promise is that all who believe, that they are among those whom he has called and chosen. And then his choosing to send forth Christ to die effectually for us, not simply to make salvation a possibility, but Jesus says, I lay my life down for my sheep. And on the day, great day of gathering, Jesus says, none of them will be missing. No one is lost. The walls are completely reliable. The imagery that's given in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, verse 21, when it describes the people of God in terms of a city, for we are the city, the imagery that it uses is of a wall that is a thousand miles high. Now, I don't personally take that to mean that we will literally gather in an almost moon-sized structure that floats above the earth, although the Lord is powerful enough that if that is his will, we shall. But the imagery is meant to convey to us the absolute reliability and certainty of the safety of God's people in Jesus Christ. Every gate in that imagery in the book of Revelation is guarded by an angel. And when we read in the scriptures of one angel defeating 180,000 Assyrians, I feel very secure in the imagery presented there, that we are well protected. And so this is the first point, to publicly acknowledge God's hand in establishing our security. May we do that today, even in your heart now, just to breathe a sigh of gratitude to the Lord that if you're in Christ, you are safe. Secondly, it was intended as an act of entrusting themselves to God's future protection. It's not simply savoring the blessing of that moment, but it was also a way of recognizing and asking the Lord to be with them in the future. And this is reflected in verse 27, the phrase dedication. It is a dedication to the Lord. It's not simply they have built the wall. Thank you, Lord. We've got it from here. Now we're going to do our best. They're dedicating it to the power of God and unto the glory of God. Even so, on this day, I would exhort you that you not only enjoy what you have, but that you take a moment and thank God for his future provision. In this life as well, entrust that to him. And worship him, sacrifice to him, by resolving to use the things he gives you for his glory. That's the goal of that city, ideally, of Jerusalem. It was to build the wall so that they might have a secure place to worship the Lord. And even so, there's no better way that we can use the day of Thanksgiving than to dedicate it to the Lord and to dedicate ourselves to him. The third purpose of that procession, it was to rouse every individual far and wide, to join in the celebration. Not just the leaders, not just in a formal ceremony, but to incite broad celebration. Look at me at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You have to imagine that in this sense, you know, the priests were always a picture of Christ. They anticipate in certain respects the formal offices of the the new covenant, that we have elders and pastors and deacons. They anticipate that, but much more significantly, 
they typify the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has brought us into right relationship with the Lord. And so for these priests to lead all the people into the place where God meets with his people in the temple, for them to sing out these songs, it's very much an image of Christ riding atop in the view of all this church, gathering us and saying to everyone, join in the celebration. And not just the people who are within, but those who are far outside, let them hear it too. On this day, I hope that it will be the case that as you go out and perhaps you meet with family or you feast with your friends, wherever you go, that others would hear and sense the joy that exists in the people of the Lord. That even far away, as it were, spiritually from our city, there would be others who hear and who have a sense something's happening among them that they are really, really happy about. Whether or not they get it isn't the point. But God may use it to draw them. They hear this and say, I need to get nearer. That tends to be the case. When there's beautiful music playing publicly, I think for most of us, our instinct, unless we have to be somewhere else right now, our instinct is, I want to get closer. I want to hear it. And the song of the heart of the Christian people, when it rings out in thankfulness, the Lord uses that to attract people to him. So often what the world hears is not a song of thankfulness, but a song of complaint about the state of this world, instead of songs of gratitude for all that God has done. Finally, the last lesson here, is that the procession had the effect of drawing attention and gratitude to the labors of others. Now, I don't think that any of the people who built the wall were begging Nehemiah, go about on the wall and draw attention to what we've done. That's not the heart of the Christian laborer, the humble laborer. However, if you're familiar at all with the book of Nehemiah, earlier on in the story, he lists the names of the people who committed to rebuild different parts of the wall. At their own expense, through their own labor, they're out there hacking away at rocks, digging up stone that had been toppled, rebuilding losing time from their normal vocation, or rather, often working on top of their normal vocation. Being at risk from harm from outsiders. Many were probably afraid to even be seen doing the labor. And there were these people that Nehemiah records having committed to rebuild certain structures, like the fish gate or the gate of the ovens. And now he lists them all again, and you picture this procession. It's not that as they proceed, they're pointing down and saying, I did that part, they did this part. But that as they walk along the top of the wall. The eyes of all the people are drawn to see it's complete. We wondered if it would ever happen, and here it is. And it would be appropriate then in our hearts to acknowledge with gratitude those whom God used to build up the defenses, to restore the breaches in the wall. All glory at the end goes to the Lord, but this is a good day for us as Christians to remember those whom God used in our lives in the lives of this congregation, in the life of this nation, in our broader church history, to accomplish times of restoration, to repair breaches. Even this morning as I was out walking the dog and watching an unusually glorious sunrise, one person went through my mind in particular, the youth pastor that I had uh, when I was in high school, Michael Wendell Reed who is in glory and 
unsurprisingly to me, he, he was one of those people whom God appointed to have an extraordinarily difficult life. He had massive health issues from the time he was 10 years old. Uh, he had aplastic anemia and just lived a life of suffering. And yet, he abounded with joy and a sense of purpose and vision, and then ultimately went on to be the senior pastor of a church in Oceanside, I believe affected tremendous good in the world, and brought that church through a very, very difficult time. Uh, I think of him as one of those people who was repairing the wall. And you maybe think of your mother or one of your siblings. Maybe you think of a writer who had a transformative influence upon you or your family. There may be any number of people that you think they, they were laboring. And this is a good day for us then to take time to reflect and to be grateful to the Lord that he has put that in the hearts of people and to ask, Lord, may I be a part of that as well? And to trust him to use you in that way. God has all glory, but he delights to use means. And he's such a God as happily shares the honor as well with those who serve. And so I encourage you in each of these different ways to do that today. We've publicly gathered here. I encourage that this continue to be the practice of this church, that we would entrust our future to him, that we'd try by his help to rouse others to it too. Let's ask him even now in prayer. Let's ask him to help us do these things. Our Father in heaven, from you and through you and to you are all things. As we go forth to celebrate and enjoy the abundance that you have poured out upon us, we ask that you would help us not to do so in a way that is forgetful of your goodness, but to savor in the very flavors of things and in our fullness thereafter the much deeper promises that you intended those things to be pictures and promises of. We thank you for the sweetness of Christ and his grace. You tell us, taste and see that the Lord is good. We thank you for the fullness and satisfaction that awaits us in glory through our union with him. We thank you for bread abundant. We ask that you would cause this good news to go forth into the world. Draw others into this joy. Work by your spirit, for it is you who give the joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.